church at once. Here's why I sent you three. On Monday, I wanted to tell you thank you, and I want to tell you thank you again. We presented this big need with our construction, and you responded not only with the personal offers of help, but with the greatest single weekend of financial giving this church has ever experienced. Thank you very, very much. We are very well on the way. Second, I sent you the regular church-wide email, which tells you about what we're going to hear from God's Word today. And thirdly, I wanted to tell you again and remind you, if you weren't here this Sunday, uh, Pastor Matt Burkholder, our youth pastor for the last two years, for the sake of love, is moving to Phoenix. He's found a young woman he loves, and she's agreed to love him. So he actually starts a new job tomorrow, because why would you want a day off, right? Um, and we are, we are going to pray over him and send him out with our blessings. So Matt, if I could ask you to come forward, and as many of you as would like to join Pastor Matt, we're going to pray over him and ask for God's blessing as he goes to marry Kara and start a job and have a lot of kids. Wait, not so fast. That comes, that comes God willing in a few years. Matt, we appreciate you. Um, the Burkholders were a really foundational part of this church family. Matt was literally born into our church family. Uh, so it's, it's hard for us as a church family to see someone who grew up here and then came to serve and to lead move. But we know that God's plans are perfect, and we know that he's moving for the best possible reasons. And Lord, for that reason, we thank you for the life, love, and leadership of Matt Burkholder. I pray, God, that you would bless him. Uh, he makes that, that trip east today, uh, that you who have promised to go with us every day until the end of the age and comfort us and guide us and bless us, correct us and give us wisdom that we do not have, I pray that that would all be foremost in his mind, that he would be comforted and encouraged as he opens this new chapter, and that Lord, in a short time from now, when he's a married man, that you would bless him in ways that he has not dared to ask you. And that you would make him wildly happy and fruitful, Lord, in his service to you with his wife, Kara. Pray that you'd bless her today, Lord. And we thank you for his life, for the love and the diligence that he showed while he was here with us, not only as, as a part of this body, Lord, but helping serve and lead these students who we love so much. Bless them, Lord, in his absence. Thank you that you've already provided and you're going to bless even more to take care of them and shepherd them. Thank you that you can take care of each of us as if there were only one of us. And we ask today for your greatest blessings on Matt. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you. Thank you, Matt. When we gather together as a church family and open God's Word, we're dealing with eternal things. That means that every Sunday matters. Every encounter with God, every time you open your Bible, every time you speak to your Heavenly Father in prayer, it matters, and it matters forever. Because you're dealing with God, you're dealing with the author of life, you're dealing with the one who runs history. So every Sunday matters, but this one, this one may matter a little bit more. The reason is we're dealing with a difficult subject. We're dealing with habitual sin. Through the massively powerful technology called the internet, it has never been easier for people to stumble into trouble 
and throw themselves sometimes into evil. It's easier now through the internet than it ever has been in human history. The topic we're dealing with today affects every person that's listening. It affects me. Habitual sin changes families. It makes men and women into hypocrites. It makes them fearful that they cannot lead. It makes them question whether God can forgive them. In ways that are seldom spoken aloud, it reshapes families, it breaks up marriages, it ruins the lives of children. And it now all hangs in the atmosphere. It's a secret that is even more toxic and more powerful because it is generally kept under the surface. And everybody pretends that everything is well when they're dying and rotting on the inside. So today I'm especially grateful to be open, able to open the Bible with you and talk to you about how to guard your heart. But before I open the Bible, I'm especially blessed and, and frankly impressed that we have two men uh, to come to speak to us, share their stories. One is our own Jeff Lopez. Uh, the other is his, his friend Seth Vanderplug, who leads a ministry, which we're uh, beginning to engage here at Crosspoint. You'll know more about it when Seth tells you. It's called Fuel Ministries. For now, would you help me welcome Jeff and Seth? You may have noticed my mother's in the crowd. <laughs> Thank you. If you don't know me, uh, as Pastor Bruce said, my name is Jeff Lopez. And uh, I serve generally at the second service here as the lead usher back there. So you may see me at this service coming in on Sundays. During the week, I uh, work as a battalion chief with the Huntington Beach Fire Department just down the road here. And my family, uh, my wife Nicole, my son Asher, my daughter Anna have been uh, members here since August 2016 or so. And then, uh, and then my extended family, my parents, um, only a handful of months ago uh, also joined this church. So uh, I'm pleased to be up here. I'm here to tell you a bit about this new ministry that's going to be starting on Tuesday nights uh, for men. And we're going to be meeting in the junior high room across the parking lot on Tuesdays from 6 to 8 p.m. And that's going to be weekly. Uh, before I tell you a little bit more about it, I want to remind you of a sermon uh, given by Pastor Bruce uh, some time ago and then tell you a little bit of my own story. So first, the sermon. Um, some months back, Pastor Bruce gave us a message uh, from John chapter 15. And in this passage, Jesus is teaching that discipleship not being just a prayer we prayed at some point in life, but discipleship is abiding in Christ and walking in obedience to the Father. And he said that we will not have full joy if we are not staying near to him and walking in obedience to the Father, that we can actually accomplish nothing if we're not abiding in him. Pastor Bruce left us with two key points. He said that as a disciple, our role in this relationship of the branch and the vine, our role is to stay near as the branch. Christ's role as the vine is to give life. So he gave us those takeaways from, from John chapter 15, and I'm going to share with you a little bit of, of, of my story and how it relates to that. Uh, although I did become a believer at the age of 16, uh, back in high school, and I had a, a pretty zealous period of five or six years of life where I always carry my Bible around at school and 
leading Bible studies and going down to the fun zone and preaching to kids and, and all this sort of stuff. So the high school years and a little bit past that were pretty fervent for, for the Lord. But following that, I spent about 16 years uh, of life that was a bit different. I, was, I would say I was in the thorn bush, caught up in the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life, as, as Jesus spoke about in his parable of the sower. I had a shallow joy that was really not rooted in Christ, but in the circumstances of life. And I was not abiding in Christ. I was not walking in obedience to God. My private moments were ruled by sin to the point where my default action would be to feed my sin if I had the opportunity. Not only that, but I would seek out opportunities and plan opportunities where I could feed my sin. Like a dog returning to its vomit, right, I would come back time and time again. I would have brief seasons, right, I would vacillate with brief seasons of, of repentance and then just sort of sink back into some varied degrees of, of um, obedience to my sin instead of obedience to God. I would just surrender to my own sin. The Apostle Paul urges us not to let sin reign in our bodies as our flesh is going to try to exert this reign and get us to obey its passions. He calls us against that. Well, during those years that I described, that 16 years or so, I was mostly like the isolated man that Proverbs 18.1 speaks about. You know, it speaks about a man in isolation who seeks his own desires and breaks out against sound judgment. In the short time that I have here right now to tell you about my, my experience, uh, I'll just tell you that the Lord made it clear to me that I needed to be seeking him hotly every day, that I needed to be drawing near to God. It has now been close to seven years since that sin has had any rule or presence in my life by the grace of God, and I give him thanks for that. I haven't looked back. Now, um, I have to say that I find many, many ways to fail, um, and uh, my wife or anybody in my life can point out uh, my faults better than I can. However, uh, now, since God has pulled me from that thorn bush, I am not at peace with my sin. I am not hiding and protecting my sin. I am abiding in Christ, and, um, and, and so I, I thank God for that. The Apostle Paul was aware of the sinful principle that remained in him and that was trying to exert a rule. And he, and he said he focused his mind on Christ. And we're called against that attempt that sin would have to reign in us. So just as he warned us, he set his mind on Christ. He recognized the battle. I remember that battle. I, I can remember how overwhelmed I would be by the draw of sin. And at moments in, in recent past, I, I would catch a glimpse and I would remember what it felt like and, and I could be easily brought to tears in, in, in this sadness of realizing that there are other people right now in the throes of what I remember to be just irresistible and controlling and wrecking. I, my heart was simply hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and I was buying the lie of the enemy. I was settling for a faith that was just enough to comfort me that I would be forgiven, but it was not driving me to be abiding in Christ, not driving me to him. 
I was justifying my sin, failing to recognize that it was me who was justified in the death and resurrection of Christ, not my sin. My sin was condemned in his flesh, the Bible teaches us. And so I needed to stop justifying, stop rationalizing, come out of isolation. I was not growing in spiritual maturity. I was just stuck. So I'm certain in the size group we have here that there are probably a number of you in this room uh, who uh, can sympathize with this experience. And uh, it, it may be that you have something going on that you're keeping completely secret. Or it could be that uh, someone close to you or a few people might know about it and yet you're still wrestling and you're still in this repeat cycle like I was where it's just you feel like you're tumbling over and over and, and, you, and you can't escape. You might find yourself, yourself ashamed. You might find yourself unwilling to step up and serve in ministry or to lead in different ways in your life because of this sense of guilt that you perhaps carry around with you. You might be very busy convincing yourself that it's normal that all the other Christians around you are also doing this, and so it's, it's okay. You can't remain isolated. You can't just deny that it's a problem. You can't just try harder. If you're a believer, I pray that the Lord would help you to recognize the battle that's going on between indwelling sin and between the real you as a believer who is united to Christ and no longer under the dominion of sin. For the man, I pray that you would take a faithful step of showing up 6 o'clock. We start November 6, Tuesday, November 6, Tuesdays, the junior high room just across the way here. Show up, have a meal, worship the Lord, and spend another hour from 7 to 8, 6 to 8, and, and, and let's, let's dig into the word of God, and let's, let's be real with one another, and let's... Let's chase, let's strive for the upward call in Christ Jesus together, exhorting, encouraging, and helping one another. So that begins November 6th. I'll be leading it along with four other men from our church who are serving as table leaders. And, and that's our goal is to reach men who are caught in the bondage of habitual sin but long for freedom. So I hope you'll refer to the information in your bulletin on the sermon notes at the bottom of the sermon notes is a location it tells you where to go on the church website to get involved. There's a few ways to find it. You could go to the church hub if you use the church hub, and you could find the fuel ministry there. Uh, you can find it uh, through the church website in under groups, and then men, or under groups, and then care, and you can get to it a few different ways. And you find it, you go to the page, there'll be a sign-up button. Use that sign-up button, it'll send me a message and we'll get you enrolled, and then you'll be getting an email from me, you know, just with a reminder of the meeting and all this. So there's more, a little bit more information to be had on the, on the website there. But also, um, this idea of fuel. It's, fuel stands for Focused Upon Eternal Living. And we have Seth Vanderplug here, uh, who uh, comes from Fuel Ministry, and he's going to say a few words about what Fuel Ministry is, and uh, as well about his own life. Uh, and so, Seth, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, yeah, as he said, my name is Seth, and I work for Fuel. Uh, I'll give you just a very small uh, clip of my life before God's transformation. Um, I was struggling, addicted, whatever you want to call it, to drugs, alcohol, and pornography. And uh, as you guys know, that's not a good combination to raise a family of 
going on six now, right? That's my wife down there. Uh, she stuck with me, though at one point she was ready to, to call it quits, and uh, she was ready to leave. And um, God's story didn't end in there for, for us. Um, what happened was uh, we decided, okay, I'm going to devote to a year of spending time with God, uh, getting up early um, and, and spending that time in the Word and just seeing where, where God's Word could uh, come alive and powerful in my life. And so uh, one of the things I did was just wake up every day at 6 a.m. And I got in there and I started saying, God, if, if, this, is, if this is supposed to be real, because I know, you know, from being a pastor's kid, I know everything in here. But if this is supposed to be real and supposed to be applicable to my life, then you need to show me. And so one of the verses that he showed me uh, was Jeremiah 17, 14. And it says, heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. And um, they, they're just words on a page without the belief that that is true. So if God said it and I believe it, then that settles it. And so what I did is I just started saying, hey, if that's, if that's the mindset I need to have to uh, have transformation by the word of God, then that's, that's the mentality I want to have. So I just started believing that that was true. And um, I believe that that's where I found healing, and I, and I found a way to, to walk away from the sin that was, uh, that was entangled into my life. So um, needless to say, God uh, grew my family from two kids to now going on four kids and in a matter of three years, and I've been sober ever since. So one of the things that we know at Fuel is that there's men in these seats, in, this, in the, the church as a whole, in this country, in this world, that are struggling with the same things. Um, Jeff was a Christian. I was a Christian. Uh, I don't want to go there and say we weren't saved, but we definitely were not doing what God's word said we could do, which was walk away. And so Fuel is creating this culture where men can come together and say, uh, let's be real about our sin and let's walk through this together because we're obviously not walking out the, the truest intention that God has for us. And, um, and we're not walking away from the sin that so easily entangles us. And so that's what Fuel is doing. We're, we're creating that brotherhood and that transparency with each other um, through one of the things that we do is the online study. So it's the 40-day study that we are going to go through this um, on Tuesdays, but it's in a day format. So you're going to go through it one a day. And you can do that with a mentor who will walk with you and um, share the struggles and uh, encourage you through God's word how to walk away from that temptation and really have the transformation of the mind. Um, without God's power, this is not possible. So um, one of the visions that we have for fuel is to reach a, a million men by 2020. And so one of the things that we're doing uh, to reach that, that vision is um, in the Philippines. We went there about a month ago. The founder of Fuel spent a month in the Philippines. Um, and over there they are uh, killing addicts who are registered as drug users. If you are found using drugs, they give you one shot and then you're dead. Literally saving lives. So Fuel has been over there for a month giving government um, influences um, the book and talking to them about um, how to recover from addiction. And we teamed up with this movie producer that's making a movie uh, that stars 
the president, not Donald Trump, but the president of the Philippines, and Stephen Baldwin. And they are making a movie that has to be shown in every school, in every village in the Philippines. So potentially 30 million people will see this movie. And fuel is going to be the preventative uh, measure taken at each showing, at the end of each showing. So you go, well, how does that reach a million men specifically? Um, that in itself doesn't. But what that does is it opens us up to be able to be an influence to the president and say, look, we've already got this in place for the, for the kids and the parents. Um, but what we need is to influence him in a way that he says we want to use fuel as um, our primary recovery for a million men. They literally have a million-man database of addicts, and they have no solution. So talk about saving lives and reaching that goal within a matter of months, potentially. So um, like I said, the, the same thing that we're going to do for them is um, set up the 40-day study and be able to be there for you guys daily and mentoring, and then to turn you guys back into the program to be, become mentors and um, share your experience with other men and that's the discipleship way we, we turn people back into the program and then we have another um, 12 lesson uh, discipleship program for if you want to get deeper into how to study God's word and apply it and so these are all tools that we're using alongside with the weekly meetings at churches to get men to be transformed by God's word and so we just believe that that's the only way we see that this uh, this epidemic can can come to a head and, and be really fought the right way. So thank you guys for letting us share, and we'll hand it back over to Bruce. Thank you. The passage is so well known, and people have it on t-shirts. I've known people who've had it tattooed on their bodies. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it, from your heart, flow the springs of life. The heart in Hebrew wisdom in the Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures, is not the muscle pumping inside your body that's keeping you alive. The heart is a word that represents your interior self. It's what makes you, you. It's not just your emotions, it's all of you. All, every part of you that is interior, your mind, your emotions, your will, your reasoning. What Proverbs is saying in less poetic, less powerful language is, keep yourself Guard yourself, guard the interior you, guard the person you really and truly are with all vigilance. Don't let your guard down. Watch yourself because not from your exterior life, not from what you present to the world, but from the innermost being of who you really and truly are, that's where life actually flows from. So these two men who courageously shared a snapshot of their story, they've been talking about, and God gave them the grace to do heart work, to work on the inside. 
And there's nothing in human culture anywhere, but especially in coastal Orange County, that encourages you and makes it easy for you to work on the interior. We're all about the exterior. I've joked about it for years. Sometimes church is one of the most difficult places to be authentic in the world because as soon as you step into this room, the music starts playing, you're supposed to have it all together, right? I've, it's, I've stopped because people have started joking about it, but uh, in my prowls around the parking lot before church starts, occasionally you'll see the people who are husband and wife are in the car together and they're yelling at each other across the center console. Then they, one of them glimpses me in their peripheral vision. <laughs> good to see you. God bless you. I'm the God good. Yeah, he, he is. You look like you're not doing so good, but God is incredibly good. And that's just as human and real and natural and common as the sun rising. I've done it too. That's why Proverbs cuts through all the noise and says, listen, there's a real you. There's an interior life known only to God. Some people can see some of it. Nobody but God himself, not even you, can see all that is truly going on in you. Only God himself knows the person you actually and truly are. So what you have to do is guard yourself. You have to guard that heart. You have to keep that heart with all vigilance because from there comes all of your life. Today we're in Hebrews chapter 3 because in Hebrews chapter 3, a group of believers, a group of our fellow Christians 2,000 years ago were given very specific instruction on how to guard their heart. And for them, the stakes couldn't have been higher. There's probably not another book in the New Testament aside from Revelation that is deeper and harder to understand. The reason for that is it leans heavily on a deep knowledge of the Old Testament because the people receiving this letter, which is written as a sermon, are Jews. They've known the Hebrew Scriptures, what you and I call the Old Testament, their entire lives. And now the writer of Hebrews, whoever he is, nobody can be certain, sees people coming from Jewish faith, considering Jesus, and they're all along the spectrum in their relationship with him. Some of them are thoroughly convinced and they have counted the cost of following Jesus and they are now suffering all of these people, their faith is beginning to cost them. None of them have been killed yet, but they have begun to suffer. They've suffered in their family, they've suffered in their employment, they've suffered socially as they've been ostracized because they have come to Christ. Others are curious seekers after Christ. They're beginning to be interested in the claims of Jesus, but they are not yet persuaded. And the long book of Hebrews, drawing deeply from the Old Testament that would have been familiar to all of these readers, makes a very simple argument. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better and greater than the angels. He is a better message. He offers a better rest. He is better than our great high priest Aaron. He himself is a greater sacrifice than anything we've ever offered. He simply is better. Better than what? Better than everything. Better than everyone. The specific argument of Hebrews is, if you ignore Jesus, there will be no more hope for you because no one else is coming. 
The first verses tell us that. It says that God spoke to the Hebrew ancestors in many times and in many ways through the prophets, but in these last days it says God has spoken to us through his own son. In other words, no one else is coming. The very best has already come. The final message and revelation of God can be seen clearly through Jesus. Everyone else that came before him, as good as they were, all they could do is point forward to him. And if you retreat back, there will be no hope for you. And that's true for everyone. That's why early in the book we're asked this piercing haunting question. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the answer is we won't. We're like people trapped inside a burning house and a fireman in our confused state suddenly stands before us and the fireman knows what is now clouded from our minds. There's only one way in and one way out. He has just fought through the dangerous passageway that leads him to us and he's saying, come with me and live and if you're confused state, you dare argue with him and say, no, it's easier through the back way. You refuse to listen to him. You'll die right there because there's only one way out and no one else is coming to help you. That's Jesus. And the book of Hebrews was written because you can tell from every paragraph in this letter he is deeply concerned that some of these who are now considering Christ and have begun to have a shallow faith in Christ will turn their backs on Jesus because of the social pressure and fall away. So in Hebrews chapter 3 drawing on the wisdom of Proverbs that they would have known he tells them now to keep a guard on their own heart. I'm reading in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I'll read it again. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. How do you guard your heart? There's three imperatives, there's three things this passage tells you to do. And the stakes for them are the same stakes for us. Sin has set its eyes on the interior, your interior life to destroy it. And life apart from God, which is sin, which is idolatry, will do as much damage as it can, as often as it can, with its mindset on possessing you entirely. As C.S. Lewis once wisely said, the nature of sin is to give you much pleasure in the beginning with just a little bit of pain, just a little bit of cost. And then slowly over time, change the ratios so that at the end, it's all pain and no pleasure. How do you guard your heart against that? Hebrews 3, verse 12, tells me the first part, without which none of the others work. It says, take care. 
And what that means is I must take personal responsibility for my own heart, for my own interior life. If I do not personally take vigilance, if I do not choose myself to guard my heart, the help of other people will be insufficient. I have to guard my heart. It is my interior life after all. It is known to God and it is known to me. He knows it perfectly. I know it better than anyone else on earth, even though I don't know it all myself. Only God knows me as I truly am. And the good news of the gospel is that God loves us just as we are. He's not inviting you to clean yourself up and then come to him. He's inviting you to humble yourself, throw yourself on his mercy, and let him do all the cleaning. But you have to take personal responsibility. The help, the encouragement, the prayer, and the efforts of everyone in the world will make no difference to you unless you take the first step of guarding your own heart. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And the reason you have to be vigilant or you have to take care, you have to pick your vision up and keep your guard high is because the evil unbelieving heart always does the same thing. Verse 12, the nature of sin is it is leading you to fall away from the living God. Sin is not static. It is always leading you away from God. Sin is not an abstract concept. It is a real, moral, personal evil where a person decides to trust themselves rather than trust God, and the movement is always and only in one direction, away from the living God. That is the nature of sin. If it seems that it has stopped, it is only to set up a greater deception and deal you a harder blow later. In Psalm 1, and I won't take time to go there. A man is called blessed because he does not walk or stand or sit with those who do not know God. There's a picture there. You begin keeping company with people who are leading you away from God. You become so comfortable with them that you stop walking and you stand. And you're still and you're comfortable with them. What was once movement now leads you to stay and to be comfortable in their presence. And at the end, it says they sit with the scoffers. And now you're completely at home. This is the very nature of sin. It's never frozen. It's always leading you away from God to trust yourself or someone else or some technique or some pleasure or some God substitute always in the same direction, always away from God himself. That's why it says in Proverbs 14, read this with me, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to to death. That is the nature of sin. As I've dealt with people who are sober now from various kinds of habitual sins, whether it's pornography or the use of alcohol or whatever their refuge, whatever refuge they took instead of taking refuge in God, one of them taught me a great saying, which is reflected here in Proverbs 14 verse 12. The saying is this, your best thinking got you here. In other words, you thought you were right all the way down. And you would argue with people and say, no, you're, you're, you're sanctimonious, you're uptight, you're up 
you're self-righteous, I'm okay, all the way down until life sometimes is so shattered and the wounds are so real that suddenly you wake up and you remember. And if you look there carefully, Proverbs, there's two citations, 14.12 and 16.25. The reason for that is this is an incredibly rare verse. It appears twice, word for word, in the Bible. Just three chapters apart. Why? Because it's that important. When you're in the grip of sin, you think you're right all the way down. That's why it says in verse 13, you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. John Owen, a Puritan, said it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's a great bumper sticker, and it's thoroughly biblical. It alerts you to the reality of the fight. Please keep Hebrews 3 and look back with me a few pages to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. These are the sorts of scriptures that drew John Owen to that simple truth. If you're not killing sin, sin is going to be killing you. Proverbs 3, verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In other words, what remains from your old former life, what remains in your flesh, your old ingrained ungodly ways of living before you humbled yourself and came to Jesus, those old things cannot be indulged. They have to be killed. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What's he talking about? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Yes, it's that serious. God is righteously and rightly angry against everything that has come into the world to replace him. And those old enticements, those old desires and pleasures will never, ever stop. That's why they have to be that's why Paul said those things that remain from the old life you kill them go back to Hebrews chapter 3 and look in verse 13 here's the second instruction we're given it says but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin the first instruction is you take personal responsibility. You have to take care. You have to guard yourself. But there's a corporate side too. And the instruction now is exhort one another. What does exhort mean? Well, if, if you've spent even a couple hours with me, you know I'm, to the sadness of my children, sometimes ridiculously extroverted. I'm the guy that starts conversations in grocery store lines. Hey, how you doing? If God help my family, if the other guy goes, I'm doing well, how are you? Oh, we're off, man. We're, we're trading cards. We're talking about getting coffee later. It's great. And my poor wife and children are sitting on pumpkins at the end of the aisle and Ralph's going, oh no, we met another just like him. This is going to take forever. Now, the reason I'm telling you about that is I, I have, I've been blessed. God has just been very generous with me. I have many, 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 many friends. But I don't have that many people who can exhort me. This word in Greek literally means someone who is summoned to call, summoned to come alongside you with the idea of encouraging you, even of correcting you and confronting you. 
I have many friends. I don't have that many exhorters, and that's okay. That's normal. I can't burden everyone with my interior life. Neither can you. But every single person in the world leads at least a few people who go beyond casual, genuine friendship into a place that if you're in real trouble, you're struggling with your real interior self, you're looking at your real darkness, you can call someone alongside you and you can make sure that you have strong, encouraging people to come beside you. And these are not cheerleaders alone. You're the most encouraging group of people I think I've ever pastored. I've preached in a lot of different places. I don't know if any pastor has ever received more encouragement for doing less than I have. Some days it feels like I get my shoes on and everybody just, well, good. <laughs> good job. Good job. Right shoes on the right foot, left shoes on the left foot. You're an amazing, amazing pastor, amazing man of God. So again, I'm blessed. I have a lot of cheerleaders. That's all welcome. That's even needed. But I have a blessed few within this church and elsewhere who are close enough and we talk well enough and honestly enough that they can say things to me like, I think you're wrong. I think you're feeling sorry for yourself. I don't think it's good for you to be that angry. Well, can you imagine how it makes me feel? Nobody wants to hear that. But look at the effort of those exhorters in verse 13. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. In other words, as you have this opportunity, it's the only one that you're assured of this day. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The reason it's not enough for you to take personal responsibility is sin is deceptive. It begins with you. If you don't take responsibility for yourself, there's not another human being on earth who can do enough for you. But once you've taken responsibility for yourself, you'll still need help because the very nature of sin is deceptive. Sin is so deceptive that when you're in its grip, you won't know it and you won't care. That's why one of the godliest men I knew in Mexico who had fallen deep into sexual immorality with a girl he had dated before marrying his wife, who had a chance encounter with her, it was actually an opportunity for the flesh and the devil. But after many years, he saw her in the street, and in genuine Christian concern, he witnessed to her, and she said, I'd like to hear more about that another time, and he wasn't wise enough to take his wife or another person with him. And so began a friendship, and so began rekindling an old flame, and before it was over, I confronted him along with another pastor and said to him, what you're doing is wrong and wicked, and you need to stop. And he said, I know very well what the Bible and what God says, and I figure I'm man enough to take whatever God wants to dish out. Before it was over, God humbled him in the most publicly devastating way I've ever seen. God was merciful and he made a full recovery. He was restored to fellowship with God, his family, and our church, but not before paying a terrible, terrible cost. Now, how can someone who knows Scripture so well, who has led so many people to Christ, who is looked at as an example to the flock, how can he or she ever get in that position? Because sin is deceitful. 
Your heart, your interior life is getting harder. You're getting rotten and you don't even know it. And then one day you realize it and you no longer care. That's why you need the exhorter. Proverbs 12 verse 15 says, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. That's why you need a band of brothers, men. And if there's 20 men in that group, you don't need all 20, but you need at least two or three who will tell you, there you go again. We're not buying it. We're seeing the old you again. Stop it right now. Those are the encouragers, those who come alongside, because when you're beginning to act foolish, you'll always think you're right. Listen to the lament of a man in Proverbs 5, verse 13. This specifically is a man regretting publicly in front of the entire nation of Israel through this proverb that he has fallen into sexual immorality. That's the context. And he says, looking back with pain and regret, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. Read the last sentence with me, would you? It says... I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Did you catch that? He's not at the utter brink of ruin in the gutter. He's not covered with filth. He's in the congregation. He's a step away from losing everything in the middle of public worship. How often does that happen? Every day. At least once a month, there's a national headline that says another pastor has blown it. I'm reasonably sure when I told you last week that I had some hard news for you, and thank God it only concerned our construction, and it's important, and let's keep after it. But I guarantee you, when I've gotten up here heavy-hearted and said, I have some hard news to share with you today, I guarantee at least some of you have thought, oh no, what has he done? And you know why you're nervous? Because you're right. Because the Bible says, let him who stand take heed lest he fall. And as I finish my 40s, I'm keenly aware of how devastating it would be to myself, to my loved ones, to my wife, to my two sons, and to you if I were to, as Paul said, having proclaimed the gospel to many, have disqualified myself. When are you exempt from this? When are you beyond this? Only when you're in the presence of Jesus, fully glorified and sanctified. Until then, the battle rages because every believer in Christ can put himself at the brink of utter ruin in the congregation, which is why we're told in verse 14, if we have come, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, the real proof of knowing Jesus is hanging on to him. That's the severe warning. That's why Hebrews is so troubling. He's telling them across all this spectrum, those of you who are thinking about walking away from Christ, if you do, there's no more hope for you. Not because God won't restore you, not because God won't forgive, but if you truly turn your back on Jesus, that's it. He's the best. There's no one else coming. That's why it says that appearances can be so deceptive. 
It's a long race. It's a long life. How will you know who finishes the marathon? There's only one way to be sure. You have to stand at the finish line. The first few miles are deceptive. So he says, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And here's the instruction. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Did you notice it's indented? It's indented because he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 95. He's reminding them of a day in their history where they rebelled against God, and their specific complaint against Moses was, you've brought us out in the desert to die of thirst. And if you read the biblical story, Moses called that place quarreling and testing. In other words, when they had a legitimate need before God, they complained against God, and what they were doing was fighting against God and putting God to the test. And the biggest surprise for me in my study this week was this. Put yourself in their situation. You're out in the desert. Would you like some water? How would you feel if you didn't have water? Isn't it reasonable to complain to Moses, hey, we're dying of thirst here? Doesn't that sound reasonable to you? That's the nature of sin. It always has its reasons. That's why you need the exhorters around you because my sin to me is perfectly reasonable. Your sin is foolish, stupid. You should know better. How could you? Why is the difference so sharp? Because I'm not in the grip of the thing that is destroying you. I'm in the grip of the thing that's destroying me. And Moses says in Psalm 95, and Hebrews echoes, here's the third piece of instruction. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, respond to God's voice as soon as you hear it. I want you to read, we only and always read Scripture, because my words are just my words, but today I'd like to make an exception to really drive home a single point. It's a biblical rephrasing, that's all it is. It's not Scripture, I'm just restating what Hebrews 3.15 is telling you. Would you read number three with me? Here's the idea. We are to do this. We are to respond to God's voice as soon as you hear it. Because if you don't, if you put it off, it'll be easier to do it the next time. When I was a young boy, we went to a church service. My parents are missionaries, as most of you know. And there was a powerful youth service. And I felt moved. I felt like God was calling me to action. But I was one of the younger kids there. I was a stranger. We were far from our own city. And I looked around, and frankly, I was embarrassed. I didn't want to make the public stand that other kids were making. So as we're driving away, my dad says, how was that for you? And I said, it was really good. In fact, I felt like God spoke to me, but, you know, I just, I was embarrassed to publicly manifest it like they asked us to. And he gave me some advice that has been ringing in my ears ever since. He said, son, don't ever do that. He said, if you ever hear from God, do what he says immediately, because if you don't, it'll be easier to tell him no the next time. That's what this verse is saying. You'll have your reasons for your sin. 
It'll be perfectly understandable to you. You will say to yourself and to others, you don't know what I deal with. Some husbands will say of their wives, you don't know what she's like. You don't know what I go through in my job. You don't know how much I stand and deliver all day long. Can't I have a little, little, just a little place for me? Can't I just have this one thing? It brings me such joy. It's only for a short time. It has nothing to do with the rest of my life. I've got it under control. I can quit next week. And a hundred other excuses. And the answer to that is, you take responsibility for yourself. Sin is so deceptive that you won't need your own responsibility. You'll also need a band of brothers or a band of sisters that you can summon alongside who are so close to you that they have the authority and the confidence to say, you know what, you're dead wrong. And you're headed right back into the ditch we got you out of. And you need to stop. And along the way, the time to respond to God's voice is as soon as you hear it because sin makes you deaf to God's guidance. If it's been a while since you feel like you've heard from the Lord, check carefully the condition of your heart because I guarantee you God is speaking. From my own experience, the trouble has always been not that He stopped speaking, but that I stopped listening. What am I telling you? Simply this. Here's how you guard your heart. You take responsibility. Part of taking responsibility is knowing yourself to be fallible and weak and have an up-and-down life where commitment ebbs and flows, you get yourself in a community. That's why this meeting, beginning in the first Tuesday of November, is going to be so vitally important. And you, most of all, man or woman, young or old, you act on it now. What God is dealing with you about, you act on it now. Because if you tell Him no today, after hearing two stories and a message from the Word of God, it'll be so much easier to tell Him no again later. He won't stop trying. He won't stop loving you. He won't stop caring because Jesus truly is greater. And if you're hearing a load of guilt and shame, please cast that aside and hear Jesus instead saying that he died for such sins and he died for such sinners. And with him there is true and genuine life. He has promised a life that is as if rivers of water flow out from the center of you and refresh other people. That's the life he has for you. But to experience that life and enjoy that life, you have to take responsibility. You were built to take this journey in a brotherhood, and you have to act on it now. Let's pray. Just want to give you a moment with God, man or woman. This specific ministry is for men, but we know the need is no less real for women. It may have other manifestations, but the battle that sin and Satan wage against the human heart makes no difference to them. They attack both men and women. So I want to give you a moment to yourself with the Lord to take responsibility, to answer to His voice. Jesus, you are greater, and there are people, I don't know who they are, or I would be speaking to them in confidence and with love, but privately, but I would be trying to help and deal with them. But there are people here caught, they're caught in that thorn bush that Jeff was describing. They have a life that is known only to you, perhaps a few others. 
But at church, they can deny that it's even real. They think that battle's over, and then it, it ensnares them again two or three days later. And they take refuge and they take comfort with all kinds of things that are so, so readily available, so easy, Lord, to anesthetize ourselves, to turn our, ourselves off to your voice. I pray that none of that would happen. If there's a single person here who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would turn in repentance from their sins and say, Jesus, save me. I'm sorry, I'm helpless, I can't save myself, please save me. And for those who are here, Lord, who are Christians but have felt the difference in their heart, they feel the callus starting to grow over their heart, they hear your voice more dimly now, wake them up, motivate them, Lord, to guard their heart, to be real with at least a couple of other people, and most of all, to hear and respond to your voice today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Men, the link is at the bottom of that, of that sheet. It's readily available on the internet. It won't be seen uh, by female staff. It'll be seen by Jeff, who's going to be your, your fellow fighter. We love you. We want God's best for you. So as we give, and you're so generous last week, what an incredible outpouring, thank you. As we give and as we sing this final song, make a decision right now that if this is spoken to you, if I've dealt through scripture with who you really are, that you're going to act on it. That you're not going to be done with this day until you've taken action and you've signed up and you've taken responsibility for yourself, you've joined this little band of brothers that is coming together. And today you've heard God's voice and you're going to act on it. God bless you.